The following episode features an historic novel that contains some sensitive and potentially controversial subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Gibson Girl... Welcome to the Gibson Man Review, the podcast that doesn't give a fig about some mamby-pamby old books. We have more important things to do, like conquering the world. So forget about your sad little to-be-read piles and dainty illustrations. Forget all of that gilded progressive mumbo-jumbo. The girls have had enough fun. This is our show now, and we will never surrender. Why? Because we're men. And we have to prove it, even if it's the last thing we do. Hello, everyone. I'm Daniel Meredith, and welcome to the Gibson Man Review. Now, you might be wondering, who's this guy and what's going on here? The simple answer is, ask my wife. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for that. Hi, everyone. I'm Jacinta Meredith, which might give you a hint as to why he's here. And we are back for another Gibson Girl review episode. Yeah, we're trying anyway. (laughs) I made me drown. Hello, everybody. So the craziness is all because it's leap day. And we had to take advantage of that. And lucky for us, Jacinta has some excellent powers of persuasion. (laughs) By which she means I have an amazing husband and I turned to him and said, hey, you want to do this? And he was like, sure, because I'm an extrovert. (laughs) (laughs) i recall you saying daniel i don't understand this part and it turns out to be the most exciting part of the first hundred pages of the book okay i still don't understand that part that was the most exciting part that's why daniel is here we need daniel to explain today's book to us i did not relate to today's book at all in fact my initial reaction was oh my gosh we need to skip this and pick something else to review i can't talk about this book and then oh my gosh. your reaction, Jacinta, was different. Yes. Right? <laughs> no, I yeah, I didn't have quite that visceral of a reaction. I was kind of ambivalent, and I do mean that in the traditional mixed emotion sense, because I really liked some aspects of the story. I really didn't like other aspects, and I was really confused the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that there was just a lot that I didn't understand. Yes. So I took one of those pieces, and I handed the book to Daniel and was like, will you tell me what this means? And so he read it and he was like, oh yeah, that was super interesting. And I'm like, what? And so you persuaded him to come on the show. So (laughs) welcome to our first ever Gibson Man guest reviewer, Daniel Meredith. Yay! I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Asking Daniel to come on the show to talk about this book, that just kind of spawned a whole bunch of other ideas that led to other ideas. <laughs> and long story short, it's leap day. So we decided to flip this whole episode and make the first ever episode of the Gibson Man review. And this is actually going to be a lot of fun. I'm hoping so. <laughs> first shout out goes to Kyle Snyder for that awesome <laughs> oh my intro gosh. to this show. Oh my gosh. I died laughing. <laughs> it was really that fantastic. Was so funny. If you had just played that for me before I even asked and like, I would have been like, Say no more. I want to be on that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, a lot of what Kyle is talking about in that introduction to today's episode has to do with today's book. Yes, absolutely. So in keeping with the show's Gibson Man theme today, I have some questions for you ladies. Okay. (laughs) Because today's book has a rather heroic topic. (laughs) It does. I think your listeners will be very curious to learn about some of your favorite characters from some of the other books you've read in your life and on this podcast. So let's do a few rapid fire questions here. Okay. And I'll ask the questions. And Are you sure you want to do this to yourself? Oh, I'm here for it. <laughs> okay. This will be fantastic. I mean, worst case, I'll just have to go drink in the back while you talk about all the other heroic ones. But it's really difficult being a blonde, slightly balding guy to compare against all these tall, dark, and handsome guys who just don't age. Like, they should be 150 years old right now, and they're the same guys. So we're talking about our favorite fictional heroes here. Yes. Oh. 
Absolutely. I'm already seeing lots of hard choices. And we'll start with Jacinta, you answer first, and then Amy, and then oh, we'll flip no. it around for question two. Man, that means I can't copy Amy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jacinta, who is your favorite Jane Austen hero? Um, Mr. Darcy. No, Captain Wentworth. No, Mr. Dar- no. Hmm. Um, both. We'll go with it. Okay, because Mr. Darcy is like, you know, super mysterious and standoffish and hands. He's, you know, he's the hero. But then there's Wentworth and his letter to Anne. Mm-hmm. That takes it. Yes. So, yeah. I do think you tear up every time you read that letter. Yep. Yep. Pretty sure I do. <laughs> What about you, Amy? <laughs> Mine is Captain Wentworth, hands down. Although I will say, I have always secretly had a little flame for Colonel Fitzwilliam. Oh, I forgot Darcy's about cousin. him. Oh, he's, yeah. I always wanted to know more about what happened to him. Yes, he kind of felt like... One of those great unsung side characters. Exactly. exactly. He's a great what if An unfinished hero. story. Like Latimer. Yes. From yeah, In the Mr. Latimer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, Amy. Let's find this out. Who was your childhood fictional crush? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, this is really funny, but I always had a crush on Alec Ramsey Ah. from the Black Stallion books. He was tops for me as a kid. And to this day, the only short guy I've ever (laughs) liked. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, who was your fictional childhood crush? Gilbert. Wait. Nope. Teddy from Emily of New Moon. Possibly both. <laughs> this may become a theme. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if we continue it. So, Jacinta, who is your favorite hero from a contemporary historical novel? <sighs> Man. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Am I allowed to say Andrew from my unpublished novel? You know? My own personal hero. Well, having read it, I would say yes. I would allow that. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm going with. (laughs) What about you, Amy? There are definitely a lot to choose from because, of course, I love historical fiction. But one always rises to the top for me. And that's Levi Grant from Karen Wittemeyer's book, To Win Her Heart. Oh, wait. Yes. That one. I picked that one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but yes, come on. He's like ex-prize fighter blacksmith who befriends stray dogs and protects innocent girls and hides love letters in his library books. Yes, please. I love modern historical romances, but all of the heroes are like these edgy heroes. Mm-hmm. And I just love how sweet and straightforward Levi is. But yet he has the darkest backstory and past yes. of like any of them. It's so, like a true story of redemption. Yes, exactly. And the wood cutting scene is the bomb. Yeah. Ladies, go read it. Are you feeling left out yet, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. We asked just until last time. So Amy, who is your favorite hero from a contemporary romance novel? <sighs> Matt Giroux, Becky Wade, My Stubborn Heart. Okay. You can just, like, pull that out of nowhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Let's see. I think it might be Brody from Authentically Izzy, but I reserve the right to change my mind. (laughs) Adding that one to my 2BR list. Yeah, you'll have to let me know what you think. Pull up my Goodreads app here right now. (laughs) That's exactly what I do (laughs) when someone recommends a book I want. Well, while you're doing that. Jacinta, why don't you tell us about a book you reviewed on the podcast and who your favorite hero was on that? Oh, a favorite hero from the podcast. Oh, (laughs) that's the hardest question. Okay, so that's actually the easiest for me because (laughs) we are so backwards. We are. We're totally backwards. (laughs) Okay, because the first person who comes to mind, which might be partially because we talked about him earlier, is Latimer from In the Bishop's Carriage, even though we barely see him. Mm -hmm. I just really liked his character and I want to know the rest of his story. But if we want to talk about a full-on actual hero in a book, I'd probably have to go with Rudolph from Prisoner of Zenda. Rudolph Rassendil? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) He was the first one that came to my my mind, too. (laughs) 
how can we be so opposite and yet so similar? Right? He's just a great, well-rounded character who appeals to us both. Yes. Perfect romantic adventure. That would be my pick for a book that I had never read before. Sure. Until this podcast. Yeah. But there is one other that I could mention that was from a book that I had read several times before I made Katya read it with me on the podcast in season one. And that was Alan from Poor Dear Theodora. I still have to read that one. You do. You do. He'll be right up there with your Gilbert and Teddy type characters. Okay. Is that all of your questions? That's all the questions. Do we get to ask Daniel these questions? Who are your favorite heroines? Do we need to flip the <laughs> script here? And I'm not as confident as Daniel. I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> Has Daniel read enough books to have any favorites on these subjects? That would be the real question. That's actually right? a good question. <laughs> I don't know. My book reading has fallen off some lately, but I used to read a lot more and I'm trying to pick it up again lately. Well, I think your answer could be Jacinta. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's definitely my favorite author. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Also a character in today's book. Yes. But before we get to that, in keeping with our Gibson Man theme today, we naturally have to mix things up for our history segment too. Obviously. Which means today we are going to talk about a real life Gibson Man model. Ooh, okay. That's going to be perfect for today's episode. Okay, but wait, let me guess this. Richard Harding Davis. (laughs) That would be a good guess, but wrong. Don't worry. Our buddy Dick Davis will be back very soon in a future episode. (laughs) Hint, hint, hint. But as we discussed in our season one history segments, when we first introduced our listeners to the Gibson Man, Richard Harding Davis was not the only model that Gibson used for the men in his illustrations. Okay. And today, we're actually going to take a look at the very first Gibson man model, who was, in fact, a world explorer. Oh. Now that seems appropriate for today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So let's take a minute here to introduce today's real-life Gibson man, Dana's older brother, Langdon. Okay, that's going to be cool. I can't wait to hear this. For a time in the early 1890s, The world knew Charles Dana Gibson only as the younger brother of the famous athlete, explorer, and scientist Langdon Gibson. The eldest child of the Gibson family, Langdon was born in Boston in 1866, just 20 months before Dana. The boys were both adventurous and outdoorsy, growing up in the rural wilderness of Flushing, Long Island, where they and their friends hiked through blazing summer heat and frigid snowstorms, studied birds and animals, climbed trees, threw axes, practiced orienteering, and more. The boys were also extremely devoted to their family and were particularly fond of their youngest sister Josephine. Langdon, in particular, loved to tease the family servants by hiding baby Josephine on the top shelf of his closet whenever they came looking for her. But his adventurous spirit could not be contained in New York, and in 1889, he signed on to the Stanton Expedition of the Colorado River, a photographic survey for the railroad that took them from Green River, Wyoming, all the way to the Gulf of California. The trip was perilous, claiming the lives of several members of the expedition, but Langdon thrived, and the experience led him to join the Perry Expedition of Arctic Greenland just one year later, a group determined to find an overland route to the North Pole. The spectacle, drama, and catastrophes that unfolded on that fateful trip would give Langdon fodder for public lectures for many decades to come. But his greatest adventure awaited him back in New York, and her name was Catherine Burdett. They were married in 1894 and had two sons, fulfilling Langdon's lifelong dream of becoming a family man. He also became an electrical engineer, relocating with his family to Schenectady, where he took a job at General Electric. 
But a man of his intellect and work ethic was bound to get notice and rise quickly through the ranks, and soon Langdon was the general manager of production, a post he held until his retirement in 1920. Retirement, however, was only the next adventure for Langdon. He continued to travel the country giving scientific talks and public lectures about his famous travels. He even planned to write a book about his adventures with the Perry Expedition. But his failing health, combined with the emotional and physical strain of his eldest son's overseas duty with the U.S. Army during the First World War, took an unseen toll on Langdon, and the doctors ordered him south to try to recover his health. He bought a small vacation home in the Florida Keys and managed to pen an article about the birds of North Greenland, but a hurricane destroyed the home and sent Langdon back north to a family summer home on the coast of Maine, where he passed away of an aneurysm in 1923. All but forgotten today, in his younger brother's shadow, Langdon Gibson nevertheless lives on, for when Dana was just starting out and could not afford to hire professional models, he drew Langdon, mustache and all, as his original Gibson man. I know we've already hinted at it a couple times, but Daniel, do you want to go ahead and tell us what today's book is? Absolutely. Today's book is For Jacinta by Harold Bindloss, first published in 1907. I wonder why <laughs> we are reviewing this book on our podcast. I know. It is such a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Ashley found it. And gave it to me because of the title. Well, I was really excited to read the book because I have seen this book on the shelf for years and years and years. <laughs> we probably have different takes on this because I would say that For Jacinta is a novel about these two young men out trying to prove their manhood and make a fortune and impress these women that they love by venturing into the West African wilderness to salvage a shipwreck. And that is definitely one way to take it. Yep. And they do it for no other reason than it's there to do. I would agree with your basic description, except with less derision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of can't help the tone that's coming out with this. Because to me, I'm just like, why? So why? how I would say what you just said was, it's about two men who are willing to meet the expectations of the women who love them and go and prove themselves worthy of them. <laughs> you know, something along those lines. <laughs> well, so I liked the book a lot more than you ladies did. I think it's because you understood it more than I yes. did. It could be. Yes. I think Princeton came out with a review today that said they used AI and they can prove men and women's brains are completely different. I think this might be a book that actually proves this. I know. Who needs AI? We have a Harold Bindloss <laughs> novel to prove it for us. <laughs> exactly. And I actually thought it was more of a combination of Emma from the point of view of Jacinta, who sits there and is actually, at least for the first 150, 200 pages of the book, the puppet master behind a lot of what goes on, and is actually, even if you read to the end of the book, the one that ultimately ends up figuring out a way to get a ship up to them to save them from the very last battle with the Africans who come and attack them right as they're getting ready to leave. But it also, more to your point, comes up with those classic man versus the elements and enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have air conditioning. You have mm -hmm. rickety steam engines that go out all the time. You have almost a boogeyman in the local Africans who they just kind of leave hanging over the entire time. It's like yeah, you read a, yeah. a modern like Clive Cussler and you just have the bad guys. Mm -hmm. You never know when they're going to show up. And he kind of has that same kind of motif, albeit with some very questionable language and wordage in there that I know we'll talk about later. For sure. Yeah. But yes. just kind of that motif that 
has still carried on 120 years later in slightly different books and modern interpretations, I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Okay, I could kind of see the Emma comparison. Yeah. But the story is not told from Jacinta's perspective. It's all about these guys. So it would be like if Emma were told all from Mr. Elton's point of view. <laughs> Mr. Elton. <laughs> or Frank Churchill's point of view. It's just like. <laughs> okay. Yes. So clearly, my initial reaction to this book was not a good one. I think we've established that already. <laughs> Tropical stories, first of all, don't interest me. I have no desire to go to Africa or the Canary Islands. I am not a hot weather, <laughs> sun-worshipping, sea-faring person oh my gosh. at all. I love the sea and the sun. You pick the right place to live, then. I know, exactly. There's a reason I live 2,000 miles north of all of my family and friends. I am not a sun person. Oh, my gosh. Even southern fiction, like so many stories that are set in the Carolinas or the Deep South, I'm just like, not interested. <laughs> But more than that, the tone of this book when I read it just really did strike me as like me, Tarzan, you, Jane. <laughs> Plus, there are the elements of the story that are extremely racist. I think we can all True. agree on that. Mm. Yep. And that was really hard for me to get over and try to see past. Yeah. Even though I could recognize that some of the elements of this story, like salvaging the shipwreck, which she goes into incredible detail mm -hmm. in several different scenes about this should have been fascinating to a history nerd like me. <laughs> but those little fragments just got completely overshadowed for me by the racism and mm -hmm. just this kind of macho man attitude that I felt was coming across from these characters. But that was just how I took it. What about you, Jacinta? I was definitely predisposed to like it because... <laughs> The main woman is Jacinta. <laughs> but not only that, she's an English woman with a Spanish name, despite having no Spanish blood in her. And I've always kind of felt like a bit of an anomaly because I have no Spanish in me, but my name is Jacinta. And it's technically a Spanish name. Like, I legitimately found that interesting just because it's the first thing I have to tell people when I tell them my name. No, I'm not Spanish because they automatically <laughs> think I am. So... Like I said before, I liked at least portions of the story. I didn't really see the men going out to salvage the boat as a chest-pounding, all-hail-conquering hero thing like <laughs> you did. I legit saw it as a romantic gesture in which they were determined to prove, they were determined to be all that they could be, and they were willing to work for it. Did anybody else have the army jingle just go through your head right now? <laughs> <laughs> Probably every one of my siblings. <laughs> okay, so I enjoyed that aspect of the story. However, it was a pretty dark and gritty novel, which is always hard for me to get through. I didn't understand any of the ship stuff. And it unfortunately, as you mentioned, really showcased the racist attitude in the 1900s. Yeah. So ultimately, it ended up not being my favorite, and I'm super hesitant to recommend it even though there were portions that I found interesting and did enjoy. But we should turn to the Gibson man, which is the whole reason we have him here. <laughs> exactly. This is where we need the Gibson man perspective. Yes. Now, Daniel, agree or disagree with us here. Tell us what we're missing. Well, I'm going to take the opposite view. While I agree there was a lot of racism mm -hmm. and uses of a very derogatory mm -hmm. word repetitively throughout the book, in some defense of the author... I believe he was British. Yeah. He took a pretty racist approach to literally every people group in the book. Yeah. He insulted the British half the time. <laughs> right. The Canary Island people, the Spaniards. He throws some Castilians in there just for the fun of it. You just feel like he added some. Yeah. It's a wide net of vitriol. <laughs> yeah. It really was. And I think some of it, too, from my like of the book comes from the fact that I like reading tall ship stories. Mm -hmm. That is true. You know, the Hornblowers, the Bolithios, Master and Commander, those kind of books that focus maybe about 100 years, 80 years before this book takes place. And it's very much that motif where it's man against the elements, man against the enemy, whoever the enemy happens to be. And I found that very enjoyable. The problem is you've lost some of that mysticism that you get. So <laughs> you're kind of in this transition period where you get that you know, life is still hard, life is still difficult, but we don't quite have that majesty of a ship that's 300 feet 
tall with the beautiful white mask coming over the horizon. Yeah. It's the oil. It's the grease. It's the grit. It's man versus the elements. It's dirty. It's hot. Mm -hmm. And so they're out there sweating and trying to survive and make, in this case, try to make money so that they can provide for wives or girlfriends, depending on which character you look at. Um, Each character kind of has their own motivations. Yes, for sure. Well, did you guys see any of the original reviews for this book? Are we just crazy (laughs) for not liking this story, Jacinta? So I read over a lot of the reviews, and overall, it was extremely well received. Oh, no. Most of the reviews talk about it being a great adventure story with romance. It was well written, well told. Mm. A couple places did say it might be a little long or a little tedious in some places, but all in all, the reviews are basically glowing for this book. And I was going to say, it actually kind of relates back to what Daniel was just saying, which is they kind of talk about that adventurous spirit and going out and conquering and proving themselves. And they go back to all of those older elements and ambitions. So this is reminding me a lot of the Wheat Princess from our first season in that our 21st century perspective is clearly different about some really key elements in this story Yeah, to where mm-hmm. we can't fully agree with those original reviews. Remember from the Wheat Princess, which was 1908, yes. so very similar time, and all of the comments that were pretty racist in that story as well, Yeah, and also talking about the eugenics movement and some of the hints of that that were in that story. That's right. These attitudes that you see in this story for Jacinta are kind of similar like that. Like the people back then don't comment on it in the reviews because it's kind of endemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's actually one reason I would encourage people on some level to read the book is look how far we've come in 120 years. Like if you look at cultural shifts over the last three, four, five thousand years, the cultural shift we've gone from the pervasive racism in this book to today, where it's something we're very concerned about, something we're very worried about and caring about is, you know, from a societal cultural point of view, a massive shift in a very short period of human history. Mm -hmm. Today's viewpoints, in my opinion, would be something you'd celebrate. I agree. And that's the reason we still did an episode on the Wheat Princess. That's one of the reasons we're still doing today's episode on this book. Cultural and national differences in and of themselves are not bad. It's the attitude the author represents in this book, talking down about these differences. Because that was just kind of my overall impression was just Harold Bindloss is just like this British imperial, you know, the sun never sets on our empire and we will (laughs) mow down anybody in our path. (laughs) Well, speaking of that attitude and speaking of the author and trying to figure out where he was coming from, I found a few interesting facts about him. Ooh, do tell. So it turns out he actually kind of knew what he was talking about. Yes. So in some ways, I would kind of say this was almost based on himself. Like, I'm sure he didn't actually do this, but a lot of these characters and their activities were similar. Mm -hmm. He was born in Liverpool in 1866, and he started off as a clerk in a shipping office before he decided to go off in search of adventure. So He ended up basically meandering the world and working all kinds of jobs, Mm -hmm. including like farming in Canada. He worked cargo in the southern climates. He did sailing and planting and the couple of obituaries just said, and various other jobs. So who knows what else? (laughs) (laughs) But then he actually got malaria, Mm. which gave me great respect for how he depicted it in the book. Then the malaria, as the report said, broke his health, so he returned to England to do office work until it hit him again, and then he lost his job, and that's when he actually turned to writing, and he ended up writing over 40 books before dying at 73. Wow. Wow. So I thought that was a fascinating perspective, because he actually did a lot of those things that he mentioned in the book. And that was one reason I stuck it out as I was reading, was the fact that it was pretty evident He knew what he was talking about from firsthand experience. Yeah, I thought it was super impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in talking about the author, the story that he's writing from personal experience, all this fun stuff, let's give you guys a sample of what For Jacinta is like. Today, we are super excited to welcome back one of our fan favorite guest readers, the one and only Hugh Weller-Pooley. Hugh's been on the show with us a couple times before. 
We've got our token Englishman here to read <laughs> the story from the English character's perspective, right? Awesome. Hugh is going to read for us today from the middle of the book. Mm -hmm. And this scene is also where our quote for today's episode title comes from. So Hugh's going to read Perfect. the scene where the main heroes, Austin and Jefferson, are at the shipwreck salvaging it. Austin has come to help Jefferson, and for the first time ever, he's picking up a shovel and actually <laughs> doing manual labor. <laughs> for the first half hour, Austin, who had never undertaken manual toil before, felt that his task was beyond the strength of such a man as he. One can no more acquire facility in labour without some training than he can in art or craft, and again and again his untaught muscles failed to obey the prompting of his will. Then the heavy puncheon generally rolled back and bruised him, or the slipping handspike left its mark upon his skin. It was probably fortunate that the Canarios were cheerful, deft-handed sailormen, courteous too, and considerate in their own fashion, for that half-hour was, in some respects, a bitter one. During it, the man of taste and leisure had his comparative uselessness impressed upon him, for while he gasped and the dew of effort dripped from him, it was not alone the slackness of his soft muscles that became apparent, but his inferiority in quickness and the intrepidity which on occasion risks crushed foot and hand or a broken limb. The men who surpassed him were also benighted aliens, but he remembered afterwards that there was not one among them who flung a jibe at him. Then it became a trifle easier. His nerves steadied, and the fits of gasping became less frequent as he warmed to the work. It was, as Jefferson had mentioned, a big thing they had undertaken, a thing worth doing, even apart from what they might gain by it. And it occurred to him that somebody must toil brutally before anything of that kind is brought to its accomplishment. By and by the strain and stress of it, the swift flitting of half-naked figures, the upward lurch of the dripping puncheons, and the clanging of the wench commenced to fire his blood. There was, after all, a good deal of the primitive in him, and he had the capacity for finding delight in bodily toil which still lurks here and there in a cultured Englishman, and presently he flung his oil-stained jacket away. Then, in a momentary pause, his shirt was discarded too, and he knotted his suspenders about his waist. He had found his manhood, and vaguely recognised that the curse laid upon man in Eden might be a privilege. As I'm sure all of you know, the last sentence from that scene is actually our title quote, and I personally think it's very apt because it is essentially what the entire book is about. Two men trying to prove their worth. Even if Austin did go into it a little unwillingly, and at first not really acknowledging that he even had anything to prove. <laughs> I've always liked stories where people are pushed beyond their limits, thereby showing them that they are stronger than they realize. And I really appreciated that Despite these two guys clearly looking down on the men around them, as is unfortunately displayed throughout the book, they were still willing to take off their shirts and work right alongside them. And I think that in that, our title quote really demonstrates the essence of the book. Yeah, I think in that scene, it's kind of a symbolic stripping away right, mm -hmm. the trappings of society and civilization going to what you were talking about, Daniel, with the themes of man versus the elements mm -hmm. and the realization that he has in this moment that I'm actually doing something. I can see a result from my efforts. This is the first time they've ever done any actual hard work or committed to any kind of goal or purpose beyond this lazy life that they led, which is part of the reason I think the character of Jacinta urges them in this direction in the first place. Yes he could do more with his life and find that sense of purpose and worth, like you were saying, Jacinta. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly for men, that kind of carving out of nature, making a difference that they think could change or make lives around them better, is particularly rewarding to a guy. Because yeah. you'll see men who sit around all day and do nothing and don't accomplish anything. 
especially in today's world where you have guys play video games as their way of doing an accomplishment, fulfilling that mental need. Yeah. You look back at these old guys who went and did something and brought back something and tried to mm-hmm. achieve something, whether it's salvaging a boat or building a better family life for them going out west, mm-hmm. whether that's from England to America or American to out west or even out west to Alaska or something like that, that just need to go out and conquer something comes out in here. Yeah. And I love a quote from a more modern psychologist, Jordan Peterson, in his book, because he talks about don't stop boys from playing with skateboards. And what he's saying is men traditionally have to find our place through measuring ourselves up to other men Mm -hmm. or measuring ourselves up to something that's impossible. And that's where we figure out how far we can go. Mm -hmm. And a guy who never figures that out is in some respects lost Mm -hmm. because he doesn't know where he fits into the code of men. Mm -hmm. Whereas once you figure that out as a guy, you've made it, you can understand where you fit in the hierarchy. And that's somewhat important. And I know that like Austin would likely not have gone or at least stuck it out without worrying about Jacinta's opinion. But to his moral credit, he still sticks with what he told his friend he was going to do, even when she shunned him when he came back for more coal halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. You do kind of see that both the male need to prove yourself against other men and against the elements in this little scene that we just read. You know, he's trying to physically conquer the elements of the work that he's trying to do, but there's also an eye on what everyone else mm-hmm. is doing. And is that how you relate to it, Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. Because he's sitting there and he's working with a bunch of people who he doesn't necessarily respect from a cultural point of view. Yeah. And he ends up dressing just like them and working just like them and then comparing himself to them and being in some levels shocked that he can keep up, but also incapable of keeping up for a while. And that realization of you can do more, but you're not, it gives him that almost kind of a moment where he understands. And I think that actually comes out later in the book where he touches the diseased African instead of letting Jefferson shoot him as part of his character arc of humanity. And I think this is the first step in that progression. Well, let's talk about that. Let's dive into these characters in a little more detail, because that is an important point. So I really like the dichotomy between Jefferson and Austin. Jefferson has money, but not enough to keep a woman in comfort, or whatever that means. (laughs) And he has an opportunity to go salvage a ship that he thinks is going to make him rich. And he has a little bit of experience, and he goes forward and he does it because it's going to be hard, but the end goal is worth it. Mm -hmm. And then you have Austin, who's like, I'm just going to sail around on this ship and do paperwork and draw little pictures and be happy for the rest of my life. And I love the fact that that's so separate, and yet they both end up in the same spot. Mm -hmm. I really like Austin's character arc in this book that goes from, I don't care to I'm a man, to I now have to defend other men Mm -hmm. who are the most defenseless. And I thought that was a very fascinating, enjoyable character arc for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one thing I really appreciated about that part as well is that he didn't just defend the man and save him, but he took responsibility for his own decision. So he was like, this is the right decision. I'm going to take care of this. He doesn't say this is the right decision. Someone else take care of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it goes back, I think Jacinta and I were talking about this before the show, where there are no good people in this story, mm-hmm. in some respects. Right. All the people in the story are human, they're messed up, they have their problems, they have their foibles, and they're not presented as perfect. Yeah. These are men who get sick, go down, become delirious, yeah. make bad decisions, do bad things, even by their own estimation. I love hearing that perspective. And honestly, I thought that the characterization and the character arcs were the most fascinating part of the book because we do have such an array of characters. Austin was kind of displayed as someone who'd had like some hard luck and he settled into an easy position. I always thought of it as a modern problem, but it's a human problem. It's throughout history. It's easy for people to just settle into something and never look further than that because it would be too hard. The path of least resistance. Exactly. And essentially, that means that they never push themselves to be all that God created them to be. And therefore, they never have as rich of a life as they could. So I really love that Jacinta, and yes, it's really weird to say my own name, (laughs) could see the potential in him Mm -hmm. and did her best to push him into it. And even though I do realize she comes off as very manipulative, and Mm -hmm. a lot of people say it wasn't her business, I'm going to blame my Enneagram oneness 
and say that I appreciated her pushing him. And I also appreciated her more after he left because she displayed her human character by being upset at herself for pushing him to do it and then being upset that he did exactly what she wanted him to do. (laughs) That just felt so human to me. Yeah, she definitely has a be careful what you wish for moment. Yes. A couple of them, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That kind of leaves into some of the surprises of the book because some of these character arcs were surprising in the directions that they took. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did not get the impression anyway that Harold Beinloss was writing this story to be a character-driven story. Mm -hmm. To me, the story still felt very much like Guy's action-adventure story. And the surprise of the book for me was really how detailed he got in describing this seafaring life. Yeah. Loved it. I completely see what you're saying about him not intending this to be a character-driven novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially based on the original reviews, Mm. I and they would agree with you. It's definitely supposed to be an adventure story. And in a sense, I feel like that shows why it's well-written because he was able to do both things. So even though he has awful attitudes towards other people in the book. He's clearly a very good writer. But what surprised me most was not necessarily the technical aspects, although they really bogged me down. Yeah. But the surprise and the challenge were the same, which is what we've already discussed. And that was the liberal use of racist terminology and views throughout the book. Like it was just a sad demonstration of what was clearly a very commonly held viewpoint, a very yeah, common way absolutely. to think. And that was definitely both a surprise and a challenge for me. It was really challenging. Yeah, that was definitely difficult. This book made me angry. And I think that's the right attitude to have, you know, because if you could read this and just not be offended by it, I don't want to know you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was like so shocking. You almost just wanted to just skip over some of those parts. Mm-hmm. Was like, I did skip over some of them, not going to lie. <laughs> so did I. Yeah. We've had some books in the past where you could count the number of times the N-word comes up, but you couldn't count it in this book. It's just all over the place. Mm-mm. And it's not just the N-word. Mm-hmm. It's the character's actions and attitudes. And that was just appalling to read. That was my biggest challenge While I completely understand that, I am glad that we're talking about it in one respect, because while it was extremely derogatory, this is a really good demonstration of the fact that these attitudes were, in fact, prevalent back then. Yeah. And not just in America. It was a problem in a lot of places. And the fact that a book like this was published with that language and rave reviews means that people didn't see an issue with it. Clearly, the universally accepted attitude of the author and the publishers and the readers and reviewers in 1907. And that's a real big challenge. And to me, that's the cool part about how much has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that we didn't skip the book because of that, because I think it's a good demonstration of how things used to be. We like to think of life being simpler and sweeter back then, but this book is a good demonstration that it wasn't. And frankly, that just because a book is old doesn't automatically mean it's a great book. Right. But it is a good contrast mm-hmm. to today. And I think it's important that we don't forget that there were books like this, because as soon as you start forgetting it or dismissing it, that's when you start repeating it. Exactly. I mean, this is a classic example of the kind of book that people would be trying to cancel today, thinking that it shouldn't exist. For that reason, I will defend this book to anybody, (laughs) even though I did not enjoy reading it. You don't cancel books like this because we need to be reminded. Well, it calls you to question commonly held beliefs. Like no one even questioned it. And we're now wildly offended by it. So the question is, are there other things that are commonly held? You're exactly right, Daniel. We constantly need to be doing better. And it's just that daily reminder to make sure that we don't repeat these mistakes of the past. Mm Mm-hmm. Life is full of surprises. Like, for example, for me, I was surprised I was invited to be on the podcast. <laughs> Numbers never know. <laughs> that was your biggest surprise of the book, having to read it and talk about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so as we wrap up this episode, there is one thing that we always try to talk about on our reviews that we definitely need to discuss today. And that is, of course, the Gibson girl. Man. <laughs> 
Or Gibson man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, we'll talk about the Gibson girl. It's okay. It's okay. In this case, I think we need to talk about both. It's a Gibson man review today, but there are also men and women in the story. So what do we see or do we see anything in For Jacinta that looks like a reflection of the Gibson girl ideal? What does the story tell us about womanhood and femininity at that time? How do these characters reflect the Gibson man? What do you guys see in this book? Wow. Those are some really intense questions. Save the hardest question for last. <laughs> yeah, you go first. <laughs> the book's named after you. <laughs> well, I kind of thought that while this book was from the perspective mostly of men, both the main woman, Muriel and Jacinta, played integral parts in the men's decisions, but they were presented in really different ways. Mm-hmm. I felt like Muriel was kind of presented like, the ideal feminine woman, even if that was simply the way that Jefferson viewed her. But there also wasn't anything particularly spectacular about her. So I felt like Jacinta was almost more of the traditional Gibson girl because she had the femininity and the beauty, but she also had that streak of independence that said she could do whatever she wanted and she took full advantage of that. Yeah. (laughs) So it was almost in a way like two different decades sitting next to each other. Yeah, I could see that. I know for me, the reason that we picked the graphic that we did for today's episode, this is the picture that kept coming to mind as I was reading this. This is a famous Gibson illustration with the man planting the tree upside down just because the woman is telling him to. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's a great idea. That removes gardening chores for the next year. Right? That's often the way that Gibson presents the men in his illustrations, (laughs) is that they are so enraptured with these women that they will do anything the women tell them to. And you totally see that in this book. Yeah. Austin, especially, is willing to jump over backwards to do whatever Jacinta wants. That's why the book is called For Jacinta. They're doing all of this. He's going on this adventure for Jacinta. (laughs) So in that sense, I would agree that... Jacinta is definitely a Gibson girl type influence on the men in this story. Mm -hmm. I don't think, however, that Austin and Jefferson are necessarily good representations of the Gibson man. (laughs) But at the same time, you have some very famous Gibson man stories that are similar to this. And you mentioned Richard Harding Davis earlier, Jacinta. (laughs) His most famous novel, Soldiers of Fortune, is very similar. It's kind of like two guys who set off to the wilderness of South America instead of Africa to make their fortune to prove themselves to the women. (laughs) So maybe there is an element of this man against the world attitude represented in the Gibson man. I feel like I'm not as well versed in the Gibson man as Mm -hmm. the Gibson girl. And I'm looking forward to hearing what my husband has to say about this. (laughs) But you mentioned that the graphic today is demonstrative of how Gibson did a lot of his artwork, which is men being willing to do anything for the woman they love. So in a way, that would indicate that that is how he saw the Gibson man, and that is what this story displays. Austin perhaps can be the Gibson man of this story because he does have the better of the two character arcs. Okay, so what do you think, Daniel? Well, in some respects, too, I feel it almost as like a pre-story. If you think about them as a whole life, right? A lot of the guys who you read about who went off and then changed the world normally don't just wake up one morning and go, today's the day I choose to change the world. Mm. There's normally a series of events or Mm -hmm. life crises or something that leads them to that point where they're strong enough to make the difference. That's a really good point. Basically, if you take the story of like Abraham Lincoln, where he had 20 years of failure, to lead up to something that gave him the constitution to deal with the loss and the tragedy and the horror that was the civil war so that he could do something greater and change society. You see the person of Austin in this case come through this instead of being a gentleman who just likes to enjoy life to being someone who actually could make a difference and have the fortitude and know that he could do that because he's done it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. In today's world, you'd see a sequel with him doing something greater or doing something harder, doing something better. Whereas you would see maybe Jefferson just retiring into the countryside because he failed his test. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Jefferson fails his test. I think Austin passes the test. And I kind of love that perspective, Daniel, of it being a precursor, showing them that at least one of them has the strength to go Mm -hmm. out and be a better force in the world. 
And that is kind of what we were talking about earlier, which is he has realized there is more to him because of yeah. this. Yes. Which could lead to the Gibson man. Right. Austin learns from this experience. I don't think Jefferson learned from the experience at all. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple hours later here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we come to the end. You, what are your closing thoughts? You've really, got your work cut out for I'm you. I'm actually really curious <laughs> if we've changed your opinion on this at all. Because I think when you came into this, you hated the book entirely. I did. And now you're like, well, if Austin was a redhead, I wouldn't hate him quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is a good thing. And we've had this happen before in past episodes where we have been able to talk things through and come up with new thoughts in our discussions here on the show yeah. that we didn't have when we first started, you know, and that's the whole point of doing these episodes is talking to mm. each other about these books helps us form our opinions. So I will concede that I have better thoughts about this story <laughs> than I did when I first finished reading it. I do not like the blatant racist attitudes mm -hmm. that are all over these pages. Mm -hmm. I can't say like definitely like all of the details about the seamanship the Canary Islands is an unusual setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This element of British imperialism in West Africa at this time, that was a real thing. This book gives you some insight into that. You know, historical salvage methods, shipwrecks, etc. If those are topics that you are interested in, I can recommend this book to you for those nonfiction kind of elements and themes in the story. I don't think this is a book for everyone. <laughs> I have no intention of ever reading it again. <laughs> I'm glad I don't own a copy, but there are definitely some positive things to glean from this book that do make it worthy of being on our podcast and letting our listeners decide. Yeah, I would say that if you choose to read this book, go into it with your eyes open. Yes. And treat it as a history lesson to be learned from. Yes. Otherwise, I enjoyed the relationship interplay between the characters I thought it was a fascinating setting. So I think that there are elements that were very enjoyable. And if you choose to read it, you just need to go in knowing what all it encompasses. Yeah. And Amy, I would echo to avoid repeating what you said. I definitely agree with it. But I think I definitely fall in that category of the ship salvage part, the interplay. Some of the character arcs for me were a very enthralling right. read because I thought it was a fascinating window into the time and the book was manly enough for you yes yes it was there's nothing like a bunch of men sweating in front of a hot fire in the tropics to go mm, man. and now it's time to close the cover on for jacinta by harold bindloss and close the cover on our first ever gibson man review episode yay this is fun this has been fun it's thank been you for letting me be here great to have the guy's point of view yeah. We may have to make this a leap day tradition, if not more often than that. We'll <laughs> <Yes>. see. <laughs> it might be another four years before poor traumatized Daniel here can come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure, I'm sure. Special thanks to our Gibson Man reviewer here, Daniel Meredith. Yes. And also thanks to Kyle Snyder and Hugh Weller Pooley for those wonderful readings and performances as our guest readers today. <laughs> and be sure to join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, keep reading like a Gibson girl. Or a Gibson man. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com. You just have to have the last say. <laughs> Always. Duh. I'm a man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am so putting that in the blooper at the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs>